Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Are princes just full of bolts? How long until Hewn reveals her real loyalties? What malady makes Masego immune to military hierarchy, and how do I get it? Magic! In war, begin as you would end. Marshall Nim. Well, this week, we've got quite a chapter for everyone. It starts in a dream and ends like a dream. We get to see Black and his gang on the threshold of the pivotal battle of the burning cliffs. And then Catherine and her gang, Ford a River, go on a hill and get issued a challenge by a brave and valiant prince. And they send an answer. No spoilers, but much like Amadeus of the Green Stretch, the prince dies when Catherine has him perforated. Catherine does tend to perforate people. That's kind of one of her MOs, frankly. She's famously called Catherine the Perforator. That's a pretty good stage name. I think the next time I have the opportunity to talk about, you know, the Count, Dracula, Assuming it's to an audience who has no way of understanding where I got it from, I'm going to call him Vlad the Perforator. That's pretty good. I I was thinking, uh, yeah, that's actually I I appreciate that full support in case you needed it. But uh, to to dive into the chapter here, uh, we'll start with actually a pretty cool epigraph. Uh, we just get a little quote from none other than Marshall Nim. Uh, I don't remember seeing a Marshall Nim so far. I don't either, unless it's offhandedly mentioned at one point, but I really don't think so. So it's kind of a little, uh, I don't know, preview into where things will go. And also, it's nice to see Nim. Nim's Nim's a character that doesn't take up a ton of screen time, but, you know, she's pretty cool when she's around. I just checked through every word of the series so far, and Nim does not come up before now. Well, there you go. What also doesn't come up is what exactly she means. In war, begin as he would end. It's pithy. It's a great intro to a bigger thought, but what does that mean? 
begin on the field of your slaughtered foes as they're driven before you, because then, then the war is not happening. How do you begin as you would end? I think I actually, I think I, it, one interpretation here and the one that I kind of assumed is what she meant and didn't really consider that there was ambiguity here. Uh, it's sort of, I think, referencing, not referencing, it ties into how this chapter plays out. Don't, I think what we're hearing is don't begin a war with uh, light, lighter action and don't build your way up to battle because that's not how you're going to end a war. You win a, you win a war, you end a war with a decisive victory. So I think Nim is saying begin with something decisive. And this is basically a direct reference or a direct tie to the last couple of paragraphs of this chapter where Kat's first action in this war is to just kill the enemy commander or one of the enemy's generals, I guess it's not actually the commander of the, the other side uh, for the entire war, just of the battle, but Kat, she killed Kat, a pompous name guy. And that's what she wants to do at the end of the war too. Right. Yeah. It, it she is beginning the war by killing uh, the most important pe- person she can get her hands on. Who's got a name with no dancing around the issue, no duel, no building up this great story, just killing him. And I, you know, that's a pretty decisive way to start the war. It's a pretty decisive way to end one. It's a pretty cat way of doing it. Oh, yeah. Okay, we've talked about the summary of the chapter and the epigraph. Can I go on a long tangent now? Uh, yeah, I think we've gone too long without one, so please do. So, as so many of our listeners probably did as well, I read a whole lot when I was growing up. I, in fact, have an award from fourth grade when I read the most pages of anyone in that fourth grade class any year ever in one quarter, 25,033. Not that I, in my 30s, am hung up on something I achieved when I was 10, but I read 25,033 pages in just a couple of months during school when I was 10, and I'm proud of it. But because of that, I encountered a lot of words with my eyes rather than my ears. Now, the typical result of this is you get people who start saying things like, oh yeah, I'm not sure that that was the epitome of good taste. Haha, ha, they don't know that epitome. It better be Greek if you're making the E sound like that. I don't know the etymology. It better be Greek. There's no excuse for an E making that sound otherwise. And frankly, Greek-derived words are still on thin ice with me. It's, but, it's Greek, don't worry. Yes. One of... I really wish there were a podcast that talked about etymologies that I could listen to. Hmm. I'll have to look into that. But... That's the usual problem. The other problem is where your incorrect pronunciations give you an incorrect impression of the word. And for whatever reason, and honestly, I feel very slightly embarrassed recounting this now, even though I was a child and she was a child in this kingdom by the sea, but we loved with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabelle Lee. I was also really into Edgar Allan Poe, forgive me. But I saw the word decisive at one point reading something. And I saw it other times reading other things because it comes up. Not terribly regularly in what I was reading, which was a lot of anamorphs, but often. And I read not a word derived from decision, decided, decisive, but rather a word derived from deceit. It was a decisive victory, a victory gained through deceitful means, through tricking the enemy. And it's one of those errors that does not self-correct very well, because you read about a battle, and then you read it was a decisive victory, and then it talks about how they were able to get one over on the enemy. Because decisive victories typically aren't just 
oh yeah, they marched their army at the other army, and then the other army broke. No, it's like, hey, we snuck elephants through the Alps for some reason, and elephants are terrifying, which is also something that came up when I was reading Animorphs. So, full circle here. Huh. That's an interesting one, too, and that kind of vibe-based understanding of a word, which is most words, is real hard to get away from, because when you read a word, unless you are being incredibly intentional, you get the vibe of the word. You're not sitting there listing definitions for that specific word as it comes up, so it's very hard to get away from a mistaken vibe for a word. So that's a rough one. Congratulations on, I don't know, growing up. Thank you. But now I have a deep-seated concern that means both when I teach German, a language I speak fluently, or when I write my novel in English in a language that I speak fluently, I do keep turning to dictionaries to double-check everything. And I gotta say, I'm very nearly constantly right about it, because I'm using words I already know. But... But, you know, there are some things that I didn't know that we did know, because... We begin with a name dream, and we're told that Ranker's goblins are being invaluable and keeping an eye on how closely their enemy High Lord Seneca's uh, household troops were following them. And they're useful because they were made light of foot and hard to find by years of raiding the other tribes. We so rarely get any glimpse into goblin society, and with, you know, rumors of the Great Goblin Conspiracy, and frankly, the actual very canonically and established goblin conspiracy because the goblin tribes do conspire together in order to allow and demand what they want from the outside world so far as they can. Sometimes you get the image that they must be unified under the foot of the matrons. Mm. But Ranker's goblins raided other tribes, at least so far as Black understood it. I'm sorry, at least so far as Squire understood it back 40 years ago. And, yeah, as far as he understood it 40 years ago, and also as far as how their politics worked 40 years ago, present-day goblins are, for the most part, honestly, a couple of generations removed, and also a major reform of the empire under which they are serving less-than-equal allies removed. So there's... A lot that could have changed. This may not be the the status quo any longer. Probably is, but it may not be. The status is not quo. We also have Grem. We have a group that's almost nobody, but the people who are there are huge. We've got Ranker and her goblins. We've got Grem, One Eye, and his howling wolves. We have the apprentice, who is the warlock later, Wakesa, and we have Black. But Grem is chewing on what looks like dried meat. And I just have a fun etymology for everyone. The word jerky might feel out of place here. And it it wouldn't be, I guess, because it's all pretend. But it kind of would be because this is vaguely medieval, vaguely Europe. And, and bear with me. I know that this is actually vaguely medieval, vaguely North Africa. But it's one continent. Just And the word jerky derives from an Incan word. It's from the Quechua uh, charki. Forgive my pronunciation. And so it didn't enter English until the 1500s or so. So that's why jerky might feel out of place to some of you here. I learned this yesterday, today. I learned it today, the day you, listener, are listening to the podcast. Wow, that's a neat trick. It is. Re-listen to this on another day, and I'll do some more time magic. But also, 
this is a nothing gang right now because even though these are the greatest people, we don't know they're the greatest yet in their time and place. Two details. One, Grem is already one-eyed. He's called one-eye. Cool. Two, Grem is the chieftain of the Howling Wolves and Ranker is the matron of the Blackfoot tribe. Black's little nothing gang has attracted some really big name, lowercase n, even though it's hardly enough. Like, this is nobody in the face of their enemies, but a chief and a matron. When you actually think about that, whoa, he has, to use words from Hamlet, sharked up some resolute, has he not? Yeah, it, some of these you would think that their fame would have come from their time alongside the most famous band of villains of their generation. You know, that Graham and Istrid and uh, Ranker would have come up alongside Black and Elia and uh, and the Warlock to get to the level of fame that we're familiar with. But no, they were bigger than him at some point and somehow joined up with him and were just sort of catching a really brief glimpse into that shifting web of relationships here. And it's neat, for sure. Speaking of neat things, there are creatures that are even bigger physically and in terms of impact than, say, Grem One-Eye, an orc. But what could be bigger than an orc? Two orcs in a trench coat. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, okay, sure. Uh, also, two other things. Uh, first of all, we get another classic uh, calamity referencing an earlier event in a way that makes it sound like not a big deal, but the readers are left wanting more. When uh, Wakesa mentions uh, Amadeus arguing with a dragon as just sort of a, you know, little event that happened when they were together previously. Uh, he says, so go on, my friend, amaze us with your latest bout of madness. Are we going to argue with a dragon again? And he says <laughs> that it is one of his favorites. Uh, so we get the toppling a government while drunk. We have arguing with a dragon. These, this crew's got some stories that we just never get to hear. But there's another thing larger than two orcs in a trench coat, and that's Saba, who's also here. However, and I don't know that I noticed this on my first read-through because this really stood out to me, at this point, she has a name, but it's not the one we're familiar with. The Cursed is here. Hey! We know about that by this point, but... Mm-hmm. But it's neat to see her actively have that name at this point, and that she's part of the crew already. It's... And that she has been for a while, because she was also present for this dragon argument. It, it's a neat peek into Black's past, and Sava's past, and Lucas's past, and we don't get a lot of detail, but what we do get is really cool. But... Even though it's really cool and they're on the verge of a really cool battle, EE e. continues to be perhaps the worst writer of a generation because instead of showing it to us, he drags us kicking and screaming into Catherine's waking life. Uh, yeah, the <laughs> sometimes you pull out a quote as a segue and that's just exactly what I'm about to read, which is very good. So thank you for that. Thank you for putting me on this spot. Uh, there's some concerns about the coming battle and how well it will go for Black's side. Sorry, I keep calling him Black. As you pointed out, that's not who he is, uh, to Maddie's side. Um, and so he suggests that they're going to cheat while holding a ball of a clay ball filled with goblin fire, so the strong implication there. 
And then he says something that fully could have come out of Kat's mouth uh, a few books down the line and may actually come out of her mouth a few books down the line, frankly. Uh, she says a lot of things. I don't remember them all. Uh, he says, there's a new age coming and we're going to drag them into it, kicking and screaming if necessary. That's kind of Kat's sentiment about the truce and terms and all in her, the accords and all these things in the last couple of books. They're going to happen, and she's dragging people into them if, if necessary. It's very, uh, you know, like father, like daughter here. When asked for specifics by Wakesa the Apprentice, he says, you want to plan, Apprentice? We're going to play with fire. I just got to say, yeah, like daughter, like father. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Though Black is more careful. Catherine wakes up, gets out of her bedroll, pads across the ground, and she takes some water that someone had left on her bedside table. She assumes it was Hakram, but there's just water sitting around and she decides to pour herself and she decides to pour herself some and drink some. And I know she's named and she can burn it off in her tense like the most fortified position in the camp, so far as the most guarded position. But I just feel she's a little incautious in this. They're in the field and enemies are definitely all around. It's not egregious. Well, but it's a little egregious. It's a little egregious, but it's also if there's water in there and it's poisoned, Hakram would have stopped that. He would have been there before she took a drink, right? And I think that part of that is, you know, the the water's here, probably from Hakram. I think she's just fully trusting that Hakram's got her back on this. Well, she's not wrong. Right. But there's also a spy in camp. Come yeah. on, we know this. And the Hakram can't be everywhere. He can't just be wherever Cat needs him to be. Except he kind of can now. Oh? Uh, Hakram <laughs> uh, comes into the tent shortly after, uh, after, of course, checking that Cat uh, is decent, like a gentleman. A gentle and he yells, don't drink that! <laughs> uh, and he, he's sort of very cat notices that he's serene now that there's he's you know always been calm but he's uh what's the phrase she uses positively serene and yet is always where he needs to be exactly when he needs to be there uh and this is not a, a groundbreaking comparison but i do enjoy how adjutant and scribe have a very similar function here where scribe is there but in the background and is not noticed until she's needed so she's just always there hakram isn't just hovering at cat's elbow constantly because he's got things to be doing he's out actively participating in things not just the center of the web but he's there when he needs to be there's there's this similar vibe of being in the right place scribe just lives in that right place and hakram is uh he's a walking orc um, How does he find the time? Well, uh, he's uh, not uh, since he's got his name. He apparently doesn't really sleep much anymore, uh, which makes sense. The, Having uh, a name's like being in grad school. It's like being in in grad school, exactly. For for a name like Adjutant, where his whole thing is being Cat's second to make sure things get done. You know, he gets some great aspects to help him with these things and he's stronger and more organized and serene and better at administrative administration and all of these things like the name helps him with all these things but the as people like to say in sports the best ability is availability and that's hawkram here he's always there when he's needed and he knows when that will be 
he doesn't just know when that will be, but he knows when Catherine was in her own dream. A little bit of a stretch there, my friend. Uh, he Okay, rude. Cat <laughs> uh, very vaguely describes uh, her dream, and Hockham immediately is surprised and says, you saw the Battle of the Burning Cliffs? Now, we all know that Goblin Fire is rough. Uh, cool that it's got a name. Cool that Hockham knows it from a brief description. And as these chapters go on, these early chapters especially, there are so many times where Hockham just has that piece of trivia that matters in this moment. Love his name. Uh, but the fact that the conflict that Black was about to head into, sorry, that Squire was about to head into in that dream will be called the Battle of the Burning Cliffs tells me that that goblin fire was more than just a uh, surgical tactical strike to take out the leadership or to uh, deal with magic on a certain flank. No, it sounds like everything just burns. So, great. We we joked about <laughs> like daughter, like father. Yep, uh, we're right there. You can't promise me that it's not a formation just called the Burning Cliffs because of the way it catches the light when the sun rises. I can't promise that. But but you're right. So Catherine interprets the dream as a message to her. There's this whole gang following Black because they want something and he's the best way to get it. So she starts thinking, so what do the people who follow me want? And by she starts thinking, I mean, she continues along that line because Black told her two chapters ago or so, and she's been ferreting out what people want like last chapter when she said hey Hockram what do you want and he said I'm going to be adjutant now and she said and I'm going to climb the tower that's a pretty good summary she's got cause and effect backwards that's all yeah uh but she starts going through what everybody in her crew wants uh (laughs) and some of them are pretty straightforward Juniper wants to be the next marshal yep great that that checks out for Juniper. Uh, next on the list is Nock, who is both obviously and ob- to readers and obviously to the people in the story, just just sort of a himbo. Because let's be honest, he could have all sorts of motivations, and he could be, uh, you know, there could be a lot more depth to him than we're led to believe. But Cat basically just comes out and says it. Nah, Nock just wants a war. He's not worried about. Uh, the saving the orcs and proving that there any kind of like Hockram style depth that leads to. And so in the end, I am an orc. It's just now nah, he's pretty straightforward. He just wants to fight and good for him. I mean, you got to appreciate a guy who sees a shot and takes it. That, that's a little something for later. Yeah, uh, that's true. That's a good one. <laughs> we get another mention very briefly of Ratface, And I think because he's in a list, it doesn't mention that he's hot. But I do want to note, we have a hotless rat face. A rarity. It, it's because he's mentioned the same sentence as his father, and describing his hotness then describes how he's so physically close to his dad, and that would be mean to him. So I think that's why she kind of glosses over it. That's really fair. Though, if this weren't a chapter that already had Wakesa, I would otherwise have to say, mm, daddy. But I won't, because it would be disrespectful to the one true daddy. Kat continues her list by telling us, that she doesn't know Hewn or Pickler well enough to even guess what they want. Uh, Hockram swings in with a little bit about Pickler, but the 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 next sentence begins with, "I don't know Hewn," and yeah, we we know Cat. That that doesn't change. That's just sort of Hewn's place in this story is 
she's the closest thing to a member of the woe that you just refuse to get to know on anything past the most professional of levels and it's really nifty to me looking at this so specifically right now how perfectly hewn it's being set up in this chapter particularly but overall to betray Catherine this chapter or next she's noted to have unclear motivations and well you know We'll we'll get to a little more shortly. Yeah, it Hune has come up specifically as being the member of Cat's crew whose motivations are in question several times, very recently. It it's great that it feels like it's building up to a betrayal. You're right. That's that's fantastic. And Catherine needs to figure this out pretty soon because she tells us, "I needed to be ready by the time the lease rebellion ended." And Black told me we had a hard limit on that. Not ready to end it or anything, no. It's going to end, and that's her timer. The war she's fighting, (laughs) that's her grace period. The inevitability of it ending is just assumed at this point, and there's no real... Yeah, (laughs) that's very true. It's not even going well. The ball has been in their enemy's court the entire time. The phrasing on that is very funny. (laughs) So... We do have a question in this chapter. Ooh. They have to ford a river because the only bridge has been destroyed and they've got to go through knee-deep water, which, if you've never been in it, is deep enough to come up to your knees. Well, really? Last time I checked. I might have been younger enough that I was shorter then, so... Mm, okay. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. Uh, but their movements are definitely known because their scouts are reporting more and more sightings of horsemen keeping an eye on them. The enemy knows they're fording a river, and yet, when we get to the ford, Dean, there's no attack. Why not? Attacking people in a river is a good way to have an advantage on the people in the river. This isn't Mountain Blade, where I don't really care if I walk into the river when I fight someone. (laughs) That's very funny. Uh, Yeah, so a couple possible reasons. Uh, One, the Silver Spears are also moving and forcing a battle at a specific location when you are, uh, I don't know, when there's no, when the point of this upcoming fight is the fight, there, hmm, let me take a step back. Typically speaking, armies clash when one army wants the other army to not do the thing it's trying to do. Usually that has something to do with taking control of a strategic point or a place or you know a city or whatever here the point is to fight each other they want to fight each other the the goal that they are stopping the other one from doing is destroying their side uh so the fight can kind of take place wherever it has to wherever they can maneuver themselves into the best the most advantageous position so yeah you would think the the river but one you've got both armies on the move and angling here, and they kind of meet up at a place. They've got scouts on each other, sure, but the uh, the Silver Spears maybe aren't in a place to have the timing to stop a river ford. Which, yes, you're right. If you can if you can block a army from fording a river, you're gonna you're gonna do well. Next step of that is if Juniper realized that the fording of the river was going to be contested, she would simply not ford the river. They would, there would be alternate, 
like she would not force a river crossing here because she doesn't need to for the reasons that I I started with. Why would she force a river into the Silver Spears? There'd be no reason. The problem is they don't know where the Silver Spears are because they're scouts led by Robert himself aren't back. Yeah, that's true. They don't know where the Silver Spears are, but they do know that they're not standing on the other side of the river. Or are they? They do have a name. Maybe he's the army disappearer. The exiled prince of secret armies. Good name. Very specific purpose. (laughs) Catherine does give a potential explanation, though not as an explanation, when she says, we were getting close to the Silver Spears, and I had no intention of allowing them to dig in behind the walls of Marchford. When it comes to picking a battlefield, being behind walls is generally seen as advantageous, to my understanding. Mm -hmm. However, if it comes to destroying your outnumbered enemies while they're fording a river, or seeding the initiative so they can start a siege against you, it seems like a... I'm going for it. It seems like a more fluid move to get them in the river. But all these discussions and theories aside, we'll get a better answer shortly. Fantastic. What isn't fantastic is that Bob and his minions are missing. Yeah, uh, Robert has been sent out with um, some goblins to do some scouting. And yes, uh, the other goblins are referred to as Robert's minions. And that that word gets tossed around here or there throughout the story, especially by Kat. She really likes it. Um, But it never applies more, I think, than it does in this moment. The, The way that Robert is going to interact with people who are, you know under him in the chain of command is very minion like he is an evil mastermind in a way that i think basically only kairos uh supersedes him in uh and robert is just like a guy frankly as far as like how much influence he has he's just a guy (laughs) and he still is the evil mastermind (laughs) well maybe he was he's missing oh that's true maybe he's dead We can't kill Robert. So (laughs) they are heading through. They're fording the river to a place that has these three muddy hills. I'm sorry. I don't have any notes here. I don't know why I mentioned the three hills Hmm. as they're getting ready for battle at the three hills. So sorry. Let's move on. I'll cut this in editing. Good idea. Uh, As they they start getting set up, Juniper joins... uh, Cat and Nock alongside Masego and Hawker, they all sort of get together to uh, discuss what's going on. Um, they discuss the plans for crossing the ford and getting set up to prevent any enemy action that may occur, despite them thinking that the enemies aren't here. Uh, and there's concern that the reason Robert is late is because maybe there have been... There's been some... Uh, enemy action delaying him quote-unquote delaying in which case she narrates to us whatever that means there's no need to dwell on it further because they would not ever come back they weren't sappers they didn't carry enough munitions to stop horsemen for long if they're caught they're dead and the thing is typically but robert so give him credit and later on we'll find out she should have given him a little more credit because they only almost all die almost uh we get a little back and forth with some of the woe here uh we get a little salute from juniper uh followed by z saying 
I hope you don't also expect me to salute. And, uh, you know, gives a little, <laughs> it's, I have a medical condition, I can't salute. And Kat throws back the, is that the same disease that makes you think you're funny? It's, uh, <laughs> there's a, a little bit that follows with Hawkeye and Z's going at it a bit. Uh, the, the woe are cute. They're just a pile of cuties, you know? I know they're not the woe yet, but they're the woe. And it's really interesting, too, because it's a bit of world building. We know that wizard magic, mage work, can heal, but apparently there are diseases that are beyond it. So this is really a great moment of a little more insight into the magic system. Speaking of insight, do you remember Book 2, Chapter 2, Demand, when Kat says, I'd put my hand to the flame? I remember discussing it. Well, we took that moment of discussion to say, look, there's a Kalowin tradition involving fire as a form of divination. It's truth-telling. Turns out, it's probably not just a Kalowin thing, because Masego is being blocked. His crying is being blocked. And Catherine asks if it's a wizard or priest, and Masego grimaces and says, priest, I'd put my hand to fire on it. It's perhaps worth noting that Catherine's version in her narration is, I'd put my hand to flame on it. And Masego's version is, I'd put my hand to fire on it regional variation i don't know but i don't know igneo divination pyro divination exists in both cultures apparently the is, thing in praise they probably just shove people's hands into fire while asking them questions is it um did we discuss when this came up last time like the what that is like what this oath means or did we just leave it as a, a neat cultural thing as i recall we uh may have thrown out a few possibilities since we don't know actually we have our world's equivalents but right because like that it's a we have a real world like medieval european style that's a way of swearing an oath like a you put your hand to fire and say may i be burned if i'm lying basically and so i i I i couldn't recall if we had talked about that last time or not because this was i mean days ago at least since we recorded that has it been wow Wild to think we started this podcast three days ago. It's wild to think that we have recorded hundreds of hours in the last three days, yes. Uh, <laughs> we get Cat uh, sort of um, talking about her force and uh, what she can bring to the table when it comes to magic uh, and says that despite the 15th being kind of undersized, they've got a fairly decent mage contingent. And then she goes on to say, basically apropos of nothing, led by a very cuddly redhead. And then uh, the apprentice is worth another 20 mages himself. I think she's probably underselling him a bit there, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. And <laughs> I feel like there's, there's a random mention of, oh, and by the way, uh, my girlfriend's there, and she's very cuddly. We're approaching like rat face levels of anytime magic gets brought up, Kat has to be like, oh, I'm dating a mage, by the way, and boy is she attractive. Huh. Young love is a terrible thing. So we're in agreement that... Well, I mean, you you've are, you are on record about people who are under 25. Just, it makes sense that if they I'm try to do... It. Don't be under 25. <laughs> Just broadly against it. All right, that's a, that's a strong stance. I respect it. I'm from the modern United States of America. I have to have strong stances on everything, and all of them have to be terrible. That is the only way the political system can function. Fair. Shortly after this, though... For the reader, uh, about an hour passed for Cat. Uh, Robber shows back up, and he's alive. 
but he looks like he has been rolling around through a pile of brambles and dead animals, which wasn't all that unusual. Now, I know what you would look like My if you rolled boy. through... boy. <laughs> I know what you would look like if you rolled through brambles. Like, that that's an easy image. What do you look like if you've rolled through a pile of dead animals? Is there just bits of fur stuck to him? Blood? Probably blood, right? It's gotta be blood in Viscera. Maybe some, like, stray patches of fur? Yeah. And depends on the animal, too, because do you ever walk down the street or something and just see that, like, explosion of feathers that says, a bird died here today, a hawk grabbed it or something? Mm-hmm. Because they leave so many feathers out of nowhere. So, probably also got a jaunty feather behind his ear. Maybe, like, half of a squirrel carcass in a pocket or something. Okay, yeah, but we're talking about what makes him different than everyone else. <laughs> True, they are in Cala right now. Everybody has a squirrel in their pocket. Squirrel in your pocket, lice in your hair. Is that half a squirrel carcass in your pocket, or...? I don't know, but having said that, it's very good. I don't know, but that feels like, actually... Can we make that into a rhyme or a song? Squirrel in my pocket, lice in my hair. There's meter to it. Huh. We need the Callow theme song. It needs to be a country song. But like a bad post-9-11 country song. Oh, yeah. Get a nice, a real heavy corporate twang on there. Yeah, you talk about Callow and trucks all the time. Just replace the word truck with horse. Period. Oh, that's more pricey, isn't it? Fun fact for all listeners below the age of 9-11. Apparently, U.S. country music was wildly different before then. And I didn't appreciate it at the time because I was single digit in age. But... Listen to like Dolly Parton stuff and now hold either... on. You can't say pre nine eleven we had Dolly Parton and post nine eleven everything changed. Dolly Parton is kind of singular here. Like true. Doing her as the comparison is not exactly fair to either side of this division. But Dolly Parton is a beast of her or perhaps the defining fact, she is the beast by which her era is defined. But actually, look right. at Johnny Cash and his actual nifty views on a number of things. Or listen to Dolly Parton's music, which 70% of it seems to be, I'm a poor, sad girl, and I love Jesus, and then my husband crashed his car and died. Someone always dies. It was great. The problem, though, isn't that Robert looks like he's, I don't know, blooded and feathered. But he has barely restrained panic in his eyes, and he's robber. Uh-huh. And I don't think he has barely restrained panic in his eyes in the chapter in which he dies so tragically. Remember that he dies, and he will be dead soon. Okay, I'm already crying. Please. Stop, stop. My body only makes so many tears. <laughs> yeah. Your uh, body is amazing, because when you cry enough, it finds a way to convert other orifices into participating in crying. You don't get that with most things. Crying starts in the eyes, it adds in the nose, the mouth can get involved. It's industrious. I mean, all of your pores get involved. Enough crying makes you pretty sweaty. Oh, I don't have pores. Oh, neat. Yeah, I had those removed. You had holes in your skin removed? Yeah, I got some plaster and just kind of speckled myself. Kind of gooped yourself up? All right. I am famously a goopy boy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I... I don't want to, like, dox anybody here, but I've seen you in person, and you're extremely goopy, so that actually fully checks out. And of course, no one can see you in person, but I have witnessed your miasma. And what is a miasma but sort of an airborne goop? Hashtag, Londoners know what we're talking about. Yikes. Uh, anyway, we're really London getting... is famously <laughs> the place with the miasma. I, it is. <laughs> 
is London is a place where the air was so stinky that when enormous cholera outbreaks appeared, people said, hmm, probably because the air is so bad. Oops. That's messed up. That's London for you, baby. Robert gets back and is panicked and in fewer words explains that the situation is dire. And we find out why he and his crew, including one clapper, counted the uh, uh, heavy cavalry that the Silver Spears have. And it turns out previous estimates on how many were going to be here were off by several hundred. They were expecting about 500 uh, cavalry before. And it turns out... 500? That's way too many. I agree. But it turns out now there's at least... 800 potentially more so they're dead yeah cats cats fielding a severely understrength legion going up against outnumbering her uh, overwhelming odds of infantry plus now 800 heavy cavalry several hundred more than she was expecting that's not good it's so bad that the famously demure catherine foundling lets out a curse oh no at which point Robert suddenly grows to be eight feet tall and a werewolf. Now, that's just a joke. It's, that's a callback for all of you uh, longtime listeners from 20 minutes ago. So the reason they weren't attacked in the river, or a reason, we don't know all the story, but one of the reasons is that Juniper, well, one of the reasons according to Juniper is they planned this. They were waiting for us to cross so they could force an engagement with our backs to the river. Rather than attack them mid-river, where they can do a whole lot of damage for pretty cheap, where they have the best odds of an easy fight, they're going for a situation where they can get a wholesale slaughter, even though it will be a harder fight. It's not about putting the odds in their favor, it's about making sure Cat can't get away. And that's brutal. The odds are, they believe the odds are so far stacked in their favor that it's better to ensure a total dis- destruction of the enemy force than to stack the odds even farther. They're so confident in victory that they're going for complete destruction. And this is the point where Catherine should say, long price? <laughs> More like some long odds facing us now. But she feels too bad to do that. Huh. <laughs> Speaking of long prices, though, Robert asks whether she's going to get them for this. And she replies, I promise you this much, Robert. They'll pay the long price before the day is done. Whatever he was looking for in my eyes, he found it. Good, he murmured with a hard nod. And I don't think his loyalties were at all in question, but he had a day that would leave him shaken. And in this moment, Catherine just re-secures those loyalties. She double-checks it, double-knots it, pulls it tight. It's good for her. And speaking of those loyalties, that, that's sort of what we get into here in these, this next discussion. Juniper's clearly not happy. Um, the thing that has Robert so on edge here is that several of his scouts died in this mission, um, and he's angry about Possibly that, obviously. including Clappert, though we don't actually get to know the fate of Clappert. Maybe she'll appear in a later one. I think it's implied she dies, yeah. Maybe not. Hard to say. I'm actually checking, because it's hard to say. Yeah, it just says Clapper said she counted at least 800 horse, so I don't know that we know. Anyway, she... At least in the first three books, the name only appears here, so... She is clearly upset, and Kat gives her permission to speak, or rather has already given her permission to speak and is reminding her of that. And Juniper is upset that she, that Kat has been talking so casually, informally, with Robert. 
uh, first, it's the there's a reason we have ranks. You let them talk to you like uh, you let them talk to you every time their buddies die and the authority breaks down. Uh, he's not your friend. He's your soldier. And I do understand what she's saying. She's a career army person. Like she is built up on this discipline and this hierarchy being what gets people through battles. And like when it comes to battle, yeah, actually, sure. But she caps off this speech with a huge yikes, maybe even a yikes and a half of a statement. She says, soldiers die. It's what they do. She obviously Kat cares about her soldiers. She always has and always will. Like that's a huge thing throughout the series. So that is a, tough thing to say to Catherine Foundley. It's also just sort of a tough thing to say at all. Like, Juniper is extremely callous with this comment. Coming from a commander of a of a legion, especially a Precy legion, I get it. But man, is that a, a tough thing to hear somebody just say. That soldiers, it's not soldiers die, it's a risk of you know, of the job or soldiers die. We do what we can to prevent it, but they're going to die because they are fighting. That That's what conflict is. That's what war is. Nope. Soldiers aren't first and foremost defenders or brave or anything. What do soldiers do? They die. And she has this callous viewpoint on what the people beneath her are for. And that is, uh, that's a tough one. And Nock is not pleased with it either because he's about to say something. Hawkram cuts him off. And then Pat steps in to start laying the groundwork for what she and her crew are going to become, her crew being, in this case, her entire army, I guess. It. She says if Robert oversteps, she'll deal with it, but she doesn't want to be a regular legion. If they were going to be a regular legion, Juniper would be right. But what Kat wants is not something that she can attain by, as she puts it, flogging people who look me in the eye. Kat has grand goals she isn't here to just have a legion and help out praise she you know she knows what juniper's goals are and they're large but pretty small compared to what cats are and she is really laying the groundwork for that here with this speech and it's uh it's it's cool to see where cat is juniper though is less than pleased with it she is silent for a long tense moment and then says extremely formally my apologies, Lady Squire. I spoke out of turn. Cat could have left it there, but in keeping with the speech she just gave, she kind of saves the situation pretty well. I think she handles this really well. She says, no, you spoke honestly, and you need to keep on doing it. I'm not going to be right every time. I need you there, you know, pointing out where I make mistakes. She says that she's upset with the idea that Juniper is presenting, because it's not necessarily Juniper's ideas. She's not upset with Juniper. She's not saying that Juniper is bad. She's saying we are a new thing and you need to keep being you because it, you know, you're the hellhound. You're, you know, I need to hear from you. It's very well done by Kat, this whole, this whole conversation. In light of underlings speaking informally to their superiors, in light of superiors making yikes statements about those massively below them, and in light of here someone potentially speaking out of turn, it might be time for us to turn our eyes to deicide and applied blasphemy.
Deicide and Applied Blasphemy is our segment where we discuss comments and questions from you, our dear listeners. We have falsely assumed the thrones of your gods, and we invite you in this segment to challenge us for the mantles. You will not succeed, and we will continue on, unceasing and unerring. Today's ill-advised and abortive foray into correcting us comes, as some have before, from that most despicable of forums, Reddit. We're faithful listener and erstwhile thorn in our sides, the Corinthian man, has a few thoughts on, in fact, has a few sources for us in regards to whom exactly it is Amadeus of the Green Stretch lost, and when, and where we learn it. Altogether, it is a well-presented piece of information for us, some context, some things that we didn't bring up in the episode, um, referencing specific chapters, bringing up specific quotes. It's great. It is though something that demands far more discussion than we can fit into this segment of ours. So instead, we will direct you, our dear listener, to the subreddit, and as much as I hate to have to suggest this, uh, in order to read these posts by the Corinthian Man and others. Uh, The Corinthian Man is a regular commenter there with great insight every single time. These discussions and others that take place here are great. Uh, They often are things that are too short to be uh, worth bringing up in deicide and applied blasphemies or too lengthy to fit. Uh, This discussion, for instance, we are going to save for when the relevant chapter occurs so we can call back to uh, the moment that the Corinthian man is referencing rather than call forward to one. But we encourage you to join in this conversation. There's, there's always a new thoughts that listeners have, and it's great. Uh, and if you have thoughts, this is a, a great way to have those discussions without feeling like you need to directly email us or post on the abominable site formerly known as Twitter. But should you choose to avoid emailing us at thelongprice at gmail.com or going to the unspeakable place where you could find us at The Long Price. It's a place where you could have your words seen by such holy eyes as our own and judged and found ultimately wanting. Because, as always, we stand unvanquished. Conveniently for Catherine, as I find inconvenient in my own situation, her lessers are unafraid of her. Juniper is willing to tell her when she's wrong. And she acknowledges that this is of use to her because she is fallible. It's worth noting that the other person in her army who is most useful to her directly is Hakram, who I would say is also completely unafraid of Catherine. A bit of a trend here of highly competent orcs being unafraid of Catherine uh, and being useful in large part because of that. Can't be pushed too much farther because uh, Nock is Kat's biggest fan, but I think we'd be lying if we said he wasn't afraid of her at least a little bit. Also, he doesn't have the same level of competence as Juniper and Hawkroom. We just gotta say it. Honestly, though, you are a little wrong if you're not afraid of Catherine Foundling. And I include this for people who, in fact, are Catherine Foundling. (laughs) Fair. I don't think this is a terribly useful direction of thought and so i'm going to spend a few minutes on it great but in a mild tangent we have an interesting dynamic here Catherine surrounding herself with 
potential light opposition, not anyone who would betray her because they're mind controlled by militia or whatever. What are you talking about? But <laughs> people who are willing to challenge her. We see, in fact, a tradition of right hand people, whether it be Hakram or Scribe, working right alongside a I was going to say greater, but I'm not really willing to say that. A more primary name. They're secondary. They are associated names, even if they are not lesser for it. Though in terms of rank, yes, lesser. There's an interesting similarity here, I think, to that of the forbidden illegal role of Chancellor, where a dread tyrant would have a named person on hand who frequently fell into a role of opposition even if in a much more dramatic and shattering way. I don't know whether there's anything to be made of it, but we see a structure of relationships repeated in a way you would honestly expect if repeated structures repeated themselves repeatedly. Yeah. I mean, I think you can, I think as far as you can take that is chancellor is a role attached to another role, like you said, but it's based on being, the role itself is based on being oppositional under the guise of, uh, uh, helpful uh, of being supportive, whereas scribe and adjutant are roles that are based on being supportive under the guise of opposition. If I, I think that's too far to say that they are fully opposite, acting fully oppositional, but they embrace that challenge, that uh, the, the difference of opinions as a means of strengthening the role they support, whereas the chancellor is built to betray. But there, you know, there's a decent comparison there. I think I don't know. I, I like you said, I don't know. If we can push it much farther than exactly what we both just said. But it's there. And you said merely under the guise of opposition. You're, of course, talking about before the point when Hakram takes off his mask, by which I mean his face, to reveal he's actually the dead king. Right? Uh, spoilers will be commonplace. Hakram takes off his hand to reveal he's undead, not his head. Speaking of how Hune's being set up to be a traitor, aren't we really seeing Hawk? The answer yeah. is no, we're not. Yeah, no, not at all. Making that argument was sure an uphill battle. Which Kat notices is where she is beginning here. Uh, she, When she took the knife from Black, she knew it was going to be an uphill battle from start to finish. That's where she is now. And that's a parallel with the dream that started off this chapter. Uh staring down the barrel of a very, very difficult fight alongside her slowly growing and slowly solidifying group of supporters uh, and friends. Let's let's be honest here, friends. Uh, so it's it's cool. Uh, the named the name dreams uh, when they show up are always a neat little treat and it's tempting to just see them as two things. A great insight into Amadeus, a younger Amadeus, and two more proof that Kat's bad at understanding what these visions mean. Uh, but they're also really cool when you actually are paying attention to them and tying them into the chapter as they come. <laughs> so, uh, as, as the chapters come. So, you know, nice little nice little callback there. I don't want to betray my training or anything, but I do have to say, actually paying attention to the story I'm reading is something that I'm only willing to do for the podcast. Because yeah. it's so much work. Just <laughs> I read and you. experience it. Listen, I've I've been out of college for a while now. I don't I don't need to dig that deeply into anything I'm reading anymore, except for this podcast. So I told the story about fourth grade already. Let's tell one about fifth grade. I remember reading 
Ella Enchanted in fifth grade, and we were in small groups. I was in a group of four reading that, people reading different books in other groups. It was a cool project at the time. I don't recall too much. Student teacher, I think, as well, which is not relevant to the story. But we were asked on a worksheet to make predictions about what would happen next. And I said, why? I want to read it. Can I read the book? Why does it matter what I think will happen next? And I'm very happy to be the person who in most forms of media does not catch the well-forecasted twist because I'm just here to see what happens. And then when it happens, I say, wow, that was cool. Oh, it adds up. How interesting. And I find that fulfilling. I think Which is why I'll never have yeah. a podcast where I analyze literature. That's honestly such a good call. So speaking of good calls people have made in the past, like mm-hmm. calling Catherine the soul of Callow, I've got to say, whichever one of us said it, no matter how handsome and talented he may be, might have been wrong to call Catherine the soul of Callow because oh? she, in reference to the Silver Spears and their cavalry, yeah, that was the right one, says... If those prancing knights with their glorified pig stickers thought they were going to beat my 15th, they had another God's hecked thing coming. And I don't understand how a Callowin can disdain knights with pig stickers when that's basically Callow's whole thing other than squirrel carcasses and lice. It's it's internal propaganda. Catherine is getting... And I know this is a theme in the story and the way it goes, she grapples with it and such, but Catherine is falling in love with this empire that threatens her own culture. We last left our story. Catherine was beginning to resolve herself not to lose the battle and die. She, uh, she's got this internal thought process about where things are and how sure she is that they're going to win. And we, all we get is Catherine's narration until it, we transition away from this internal narration into Nock speaking with a distinct undertone of satisfaction. He says, ah, looks like we're going to win this one. We don't know exactly what is going on in this moment. Uh, he explains a bit in just a moment. Um, but that we get this internal monologue of Catherine building up to being sure of victory and that that is recognizable to Again, her biggest fan uh, from you know the time at the college. It's great. I love this line. I love this scene of absolute faith from Nock and grim determination from Catherine. And she doesn't even particularly... She doesn't acknowledge Nock at all. And in fact, explicitly ignores him and Z's. But th- this interplay, this complete un unconcerned dedication to Catherine from Nock that's just, oh, okay, cool, we're going to win because Catherine's getting that face, that expression. Faith is pretty simple when it always works out. Yeah, fair. And, you know, Nock's faith in Catherine is repeatedly rewarded and it never goes badly. He never gets burned. Whoa. Sometimes the devil wants to use you to speak and I do believe in platforming. Uh, uh-huh, go for it. You just like I do teaches. believe in platforming alternate viewpoints. There it is. You know, teach the controversy. Mm-hmm. By which I mean hurt people. After everybody takes a turn explaining that Catherine does in fact make a funny expression when she's sure she's going to win, Cat uh, comes up with a plan. And as people are, you know, smiling and enjoying this, we get a finger clench. 
that gets us up to 15 for the story. As many as there are number in their legion. Whoa, good point. What a coincidence. Uh, This is EE. There are no coincidences. The 15th first battle is at the 15th finger clench, which is actually, though obviously a coincidence, really cool. (laughs) Uh, Things get moving. We get uh, Catherine sort of laying the ground for the fight, and by Catherine, I mean her legion. Um, and <laughs> all labor is accomplished by the working class. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, and as as she is laying the battlefield out, she's getting everything ready and she's getting her formation set up. Uh, we get a peek into this formation in a way that reveals to us how desperate things are, and also how. For, in terms of the battle itself, but also how desperate things are in terms of a particular unit within this army. Typically speaking, when you have a group of soldiers who are meant to fight together in this style of warfare, who are meant to train together, who are part of the same unit, you have them fight on the battlefield together because that's how they've trained. Those are the people they've trained with. Those are the people they're comfortable standing alongside. Those are the people they trust. However, the lack of trust that Catherine, well, that Juniper has, and by extension, Catherine has to have here, in the recently created Forlorn Hope is very concerning because Juniper would rather have that unit split up to prevent a mass route from them. They are Their lines are spread across the ranks. They aren't together. They are throughout the formation with, uh, you know, apparently grouped up into individual lines uh to be you know across there i don't remember the exact number when it comes to the forlorn hope but i know there's several lines and they are all across the formation there's if some of them leave they are or try to leave they are surrounded by more loyal troops and they can't all break together because of the nature of battlefields the the lack of trust here is astounding the lack of trust in the deserter portion of the legion yeah then don't have them on the battlefield the 15th is not in a great position right now, even though that changes immensely shortly. Yeah, I guess. But, speaking of individual units in the battle, that's you're all leaving. the transition you're getting. Thank you. Uh, the uh, Exiled Prince shows up with uh, someone alongside him, and this someone has uh, a standard, which is a silver knight riding on a field of white. Pat's response to that is to think that the exiled prince is not even fielding knights, making him pretentious. Now, the distinction between a knight and not a knight, but somebody who fights like a knight, is pretty blurry, I would say. And Catherine calling this guy pretentious for not having knights, but having a knight on his banner, is, uh, I would say, even more pretentious that of what only Callow can field knights? Is that is that what this is? These are heavy cavalry. Finally, Callow and Pride is back. <laughs> there it is. These are they're they're using, uh, if I recall correctly, uh, cataphracts, which are let me check, really heavily armored shock cavalry made up of rich people. I don't know about you, but that sounds like knights to me. Can you imagine living in a day and age where rich people are in the army? Goodness, yeah! Wow, what a world. Or where only rich people get to be in the army, a la the Roman Empire, which some people think about regularly. Yeah, I'm very topical right now. Nice. 
but we uh, Ziz uses his special magical sight to take a look at the uh, minion that uh, the exiled prince has brought along from a distance mm-hmm. too, and he's trying to place the minion. Says that one has a name. Not a strong one, but still dangerous. Probably an attendant-type role by looks of the power. Equerry, or maybe page. First of all, really incisive idea from, I see that person has a name, and it's, you know, not a primary named kind of level of power. So, and then he correctly identifies what the name is. And secondly, equerry or page, I am reminded of the meme of Blood Orange, she's so pretentious. It's red. Same thing. You Page just means equerry, as far as I'm concerned, and as far as names are concerned, because the squire, the page, the equerry, they're all going to be doing the same thing. Roughly. There, there's a little bit of nuance there. Come on now. Names, they're all going to be doing the same thing, because yeah. they just are an interpretation of. Catherine is not squiring for the night. Yeah, fair. Over here, you know what? I guess that I... Don't know if we ever get her name, but she's equering for him. And also, I just looked up to make sure I would pronounce equery right, because I don't think I've ever said it before today. Right, because you're an adult and not British nobility. Thank you. But you want to know a terrible thing? Sure. I looked up equery, and the first thing on the DuckDuckGo results were equery. Now, a personal attendant to a British royal household, whatever. Uh, Sorry, the British royal household. Yeah. And then recent news articles about the king's dashing equerry, or how about this one? Prepare to see more of the hot equerry, aka major eye candy, as he gets a promotion. First of all, absolutely plain-looking rich dude. <laughs> and I don't mean it negatively, I just mean like, oh look, he's 40 and healthy, and in a uniform. And he has money, Ooh. you say? Okay. And secondly, he's a grown man playing dress-up for a royal family? Get- I I very recently, within the last 48 hours, had cause to explain to a couple of people what the word parasocial means. And it's unfortunate that that word applies to everybody in England. Abigail Thorne has a very good summary of... Uh, yes, I think about her... The relationship with the royal family. I think about her stance on that literally every time somebody mentions the royal family in a positive light. Literally every time. And, you know, just I and my dear, dear friend Taylor Swift probably had the same view on this, I assume, because I impose it on her and we're buddies. So, uh, there are two enemy named on the field and Catherine is a little concerned because in her summation of the sides, it's herself. She could handle one named, surely. Historically. Uh, uh, yeah. But she's concerned that there's two because Hawkram has yet to come into any of his aspects which basically means he's a tough orc. Which, to be fair, great. He had less of a name and he was able to body thief, but <laughs> well, yeah, still, but thief, thief compared to uh, every. <laughs> anyway, he's, er, she's, she's concerned then because now it's apparently two named versus a named and a eh, barely named. Why is she fully just ignoring the fact that she's got Apprentice right next to her? I, I don't know. Are his powers really suited for battle? Uh, I mean, if she wants to turn the tides of battle, we'll come Carmichael back to, is right there. We'll, co- we'll come back to that question next chapter when she pretty directly answers it. So, are women people? Wow, that's a great question. 
In the I mean, universe of the guide. Oh, okay. I was going to say, in real life, philosophers have been kind of debating that one for several thousand years. Aren't men just wild? What I is just, wrong with our golly, people? Golly, yeah. By philosophers, of course, you mean the men. Right. The women right. seem to have had an answer all the way, as though they knew. I mean, I said for thousands of years. Statistically speaking, I'm still completely right. Women weren't really allowed to think it publicly for most of human history. And some of them dared to anyway. So many of them did. In fact, Heroines. I think they all had their own opinions. Whoa, you think so? I do. And that's what makes me a feminist. You are, yeah, you are the feminist. In chapter two, I noticed it, two of book one, I am calling back a literal year because this podcast has been going on a year. Thank you to all of our listeners, except you. Tom, you are not appreciated. (laughs) But in the second chapter, Catherine saw a bunch of guards, black guards, if you will, black guards, get it? (laughs) Uh, Where black was holed up. And which is how I'm describing him visiting openly. Mm-hmm. And she assumed they were men and then was like, whoa, why did I do that? And I said it was kind of weird in this world where, with a few pointed exceptions we have addressed, women, I'm sorry, men are not the default. Mm-hmm. But here, she looks at the equerry, or as she says, maybe equerry rammed the standard into the mud and brought the horn dangling off his shoulder to his lips. And you did address a year ago in chapter two that there is a sort of blockiness to armor that is in certain degrees working with just averages more masculine than otherwise. Sure. And that's fair, but also Catherine is accustomed to being in a world where being in armies and murdering other people is not a boy hobby. And I, ju- I, I don't know. I just, I'm always weirded out here when all of a sudden we get a little androcentrism. And it's not a big deal. But the equerry is a girl. And Catherine's a girl. And what if they kissed? And what if we kissed in the three hills? Uh, yeah, I like, I don't mind a story where sometimes characters guess gender wrong from a distance or whatever. Like, that's, that's a normal human thing to do. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. And where there are gendered things in a society, and there are gendered things in the guideverse too, I don't recall seeing men in dresses at any point. I mean, aside from, yeah, aside from where do you draw the line between, like, a nobleman's fancy robe and a dress, actually. Right, but dresses exist as feminine wear. Yeah, 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 sure. Uh, or feminized wear, perhaps? Yeah. But, so I'm, I'm just saying, there are, places and reasons why people might guess gender incorrectly or you know mm-hmm. women yeah, yeah. have long hair in this culture and she has short cropped hair she looks like a boy or byzantine style men have long hair oh look here's someone with amazing byzantine hair i'm going to assume he's a man oh no it's actually the saint of swords whoops who doesn't have amazing byzantine hair she just has That's actually the first description of her i've got it pulled up there was an a super old, really mean woman who looked like a sword, but without Byzantine hair. I, I adore that description, because the implication is, with that butt in there, swords normally have Byzantine hair. E.E. is an amazing writer. <laughs> That's so... You know, I've been envisioning all of the swords in this story wrong so far, and I'm really glad that that's been corrected this early before I embarrassed myself later on. Is it an Onion article where George R.R. R. Martin admits to not knowing what a horse is? That sounds right. Uh, 
regardless, I, I, I see what you're saying. I agree. Uh, guessing wrong on gender, not a big deal. The fact that it doesn't happen often and the place where it does here is something that would fit very well in a real life place where sexism is incredibly real. Uh, the, ah, that it's a field of battle and a person is doing a battle thing. I'm going to use masculine pronouns until I'm corrected. It's, it is a little weird for the guide. Uh, but you know, I, I, I guess it happens. There are, there are definitely a few places where cat does that, especially, uh, which almost makes me wonder if Callow's just behind in that era, in that area where Callow and soldiers tend to be men. Uh, but we know that that's not necessarily the case because uh, we've got the fox and other Callowan soldiers that are explicitly female throughout the story. So I wonder if anything's up with the Callowan home for tra- lore home for tragically orphaned girls. If they're taught to be proper ladies, well, not ladies, nobility. They're taught to be proper women, and so things get gendered there hmm. to an intensity that it is always. Maybe not behind the times, but from antiquated periods. And it could also be, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to dig too much into this to assign way more depth to this moment where Cat assumes the wrong gender. Uh, We've all been there. Yeah, but you know, it very well could be that the adults in Cat's life were weird about gender and Kat stuck with Cat in ways that she doesn't really grapple with particularly. You know, like, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's something going on with Callow or with the Imperial Orphanages. Could have just been some weirdos. Yeah, I mean, and my parents are progressive baby boomers, and you know half of that means they're still a little weird about gender. Yeah. Really, you can chalk up a lot of things that you would, at first blush, think, wow, this is rough and misogynistic to just, yeah, people are weirdos. Still, I mean, yeah, not be too exclusive. You can be a weirdo misogynist, to be clear. I would classify most misogynists as weirdos, in fact. You know what else is kind of weird? What's that? If, I don't know, an equerry blows a horn and an entire army shudders before them. Yeah, uh, clearly this person has a neat trick uh, and it must surely be unique, like an aspect of this person... Oh, no, wait, let me check here. Z's knows what it is. It's just a usual standard named package. You know, uh, priestly stuff, I think. Your usual sound will strike fear in the heart of the wicked package. Standard stuff. Boilerplate. It's, I love that. It's so good that there's just sort of this, you know, categorization of magic. And I'm not even talking just spells here, but priestly supernatural abilities where, uh, you know, the... Magical sound scares people package. <laughs> it's very good. What else is very good is there are different conventions for writing in different places. The way I will communicate in an email that's three sentences long and I get four different people to check to a boss or advisor or important figure I want to have a conversation with is a different sort of writing than I'll put on a Tumblr post, which is a different sort of writing than I'll use to announce the next episode of the podcast we out on the practical guide to evil discord mm-hmm. which is well worth joining even this long after it's been even this long after practical guide has ended in part because it's not the practical guide to evil discord but just ee's works mm-hmm. but given what we're talking about that's how i'm thinking about it and one convention 
that is not acceptable in most people's renditions of noveling is to use all caps to express noise or intensity, which means that where it is used, it comes off as a very distinct choice and perhaps over the top, which I think is a very appropriate right. choice considering we've got the guy who's so full of himself. And you know that because he's hot, because he calls out in all caps, FOUL MINIONS OF THE DARK! I AM THE EXILED PRINCE, LORD OF THE SILVER SPEARS, RIGHTFUL HEIR TO THE THRONE OF HELIKI! And Catherine's reaction is to blink and ask her people, is he, is he starting a monologue? Just in case I'd somehow been trapped in an illusion. And Apprentice says, huh, I didn't think people actually did that. I mean, I've read about it, but this is a little surreal. And I love how these are the children of the reformers. They are of a new era and have been taught mm -hmm. new standards to the extent that this kind of traditional practice is so wild to them. And I love it. And I also love his performance. Th oh, yeah. This deserves all caps. It's very which I think good. It's the wrong choice for almost any book at any time. So good here. Having. Using all caps for shouting every time, bad. Using all caps for the exiled prince who begins a monologue with foul minions of the dark and then spends another full sentence describing himself. Yeah, uh, give that all caps for sure. Uh, and he's got it considering his upbringing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he wants a duel with Catherine. That's like the point of his shouting, uh, which... A couple people are confused by Juniper is concerned. She says, is, is he serious? Why would he risk that when he has the larger force? And Z's laughs at this because he's royalty. It's not a trap. All that crown wearing has simply atrophied the part of the brain us mere peasants get common sense from. Very funny line, like top tier stuff. However, is Z's a peasant? I don't feel like that's an appropriate label for the son of the warlock in Prace. I mean, he's not of a royal bloodline, which, you know, Militia also is not. Right. Which actually is significant, because while there aren't royal bloodlines, there are certainly very important bloodlines of Brace. Mm -hmm. It's subtle, but if you read between the lines, you can see. Are you, You're talking about like the difference between Sinike and Tegreb, right? Like, that, that's all there is? I'm just saying, if you look carefully, there's enough stuff to make you say, whoa, Loth. Dear listeners, it did not come through his microphone. But he did laugh. I laughed a so lot. I yeah, <laughs> I got a, a very good laugh out of me. Oh man, my mic just frequently refuses to pick up my laughter, which I consider one of the greatest tragedies of the age. Uh, Speaking of great tragedies, so Catherine asks about how far away the prince is standing with his nonsense, and nobody really picks on, uh, up why she does this. She says, "Huh," you know. She even comments. That's effective killing range for our crossbows. Juniper, of all people, doesn't connect the dots. You know, she says, and? And Catherine's response is so good. She patiently responds, I was thinking about shooting him. This man has come up under his banner to announce his intention for a duel. He's standing on the field, resplendent in his silver armor, ready for the battle. And Catherine is just calmly... Not scheming, not over here like, ah, he's fallen into my trap, but just, I was thinking about shooting him. Just, I had a thought, we might shoot him. <laughs> and, 
everybody around in silence turns to stare at her in shock and Hawkram's response hesitation he's he's unsure about this he says can we can we actually do that it's so good they're they're so taken aback by this idea that they could just kill a guy that Hawkman is asking basically if they have permission to shoot the enemy, the leader of the enemy force. And they get justification for it because there's no flag of truce. And if there even if there were, they don't observe that with rebels. But these are the legions of terror, the bad guys, the people who got where they are by breaking all the rules uh, as a unit, not these individuals. But also in their breaking all the rules, They've actually adopted a whole new set of rules, mm-hmm. and they are a bit—they're a bit old-fashioned in that. However, that does not stop them. So, what impresses me is Catherine is willing to just kind of throw a shot out. Juniper asks if she should send for a sharpshooter, and Catherine's like, <laughs> knocks close to the front, and he's a fairly good shot. Yeah. The, the... <laughs> There's so much that you can read into that line. Just the shrug, like, eh, knocks close enough. Let him do it. <laughs> There's no, like, let's set up anything. Let's let's find out who can do the shot. Let's get Pickler involved. No, it's just, eh, I've seen Nock use a crossbow before. Let him do it. It's great because Nock doesn't even have a crossbow, so it's not like that's his weapon of choice. He has to get one from someone else. Uh, in fact, when a messenger goes to Nock to tell him what's going on, He's surprised, and he looks up to Catherine, and Catherine's response isn't like, you know, a uh, a serious, somber nod or, uh, you know, a, a raised fist or, or anything. She just holds up nothing and mimes shooting a crossbow. It's such a goofy scene. You know, I can picture somebody hundreds of feet away looking up to the hill to see what is my commander's thinking, and she just shrugs and pretends to shoot a crossbow <laughs> which you'd think would reveal their intentions to uh a name who a named who you know kind of famously can have good eyesight but eh, the scene's too good for me to really care about that also he's named he probably has a way to deal with projectiles oops i was going to put a note here because he shoots as everyone listening remembers because this is that moment uh-huh and if you don't remember, get out. You haven't read the story yet. You are not allowed here, and we don't want you here. But you can go to patreon.com slash pgtee and give us money for having suffered your presence. Yikes. And Catherine writes, And as the murderous bolt sailed through the air, I could already see the angle was wrong. And my thought was, no. No, she couldn't. It's a speedy little crossbow bolt going fast across. You it's, it's not a bullet. You can see it, but it's good. It's time to look at the angle. I don't care about your name. Well, apparently, and I had to do more searching than I wanted, probably because even though Google is terrible and stealing all your data, DuckDuckGo's search engine is... Not Google. It's whimsical. Which is what you want in a search engine. But apparently a medieval crossbow bolt goes about 140 feet per second, and it's 150 yards. And a yard is about three feet, which means it's about a three-second shot, which is a comical, the ideal comical length of time. Just this bolt flying out. Also, with three seconds of gravity affecting it, that angle is wow. It's, yep. <laughs> which really adds to the comedy. And, you know, this is a, a, a cool scene. Like, I don't want to take away from how 
how much this speaks to Kat's character, but it is a very funny scene, which also speaks to Kat's character, uh, that this bolt flies through the air for multiple seconds, and the exiled prince doesn't move. <laughs> he either doesn't see it, which doesn't strike me as particularly likely for a combat-focused name, it seems. I don't know how fully combat-focused, but at least combat-adjacent name. Oh no, he's an exile-focused name. Oh, this whole thing is getting kicked out of places. Like life. Uh, and he, or the helmet store, <laughs> that was a better one, sorry. Uh, he. Oh, I'll take back my laugh then. Okay. <laughs> he just sits there for this bolt for three seconds. The entire army, the, the entire 15th, is watching this bolt slowly glide through the air. <laughs> How obvious it is that it was going to miss is not apparent because. Uh, I don't know how well you, you... It'd be tough to judge that from a distance until it got close enough to basically already be there. But Catherine can see it's going to miss, which just adds to the... Adds to everything. And then, of course, we get the classic... I don't know. Not quite monkey's paw, but something like it, where the magic item doesn't function exactly as you want, but rather exactly as it says it's going to. And we have a little bit of a whoopsie-daisy with the arrow. I'm sorry, with the bolt. You don't want to detract from the gravity of the scene, but... As his magical armor redirects the bolt away from itself as it's supposed to, drayed up and into his throat, Masego starts laughing convulsively. There is humor, even in the scene. A lot of people are staring in shock. The equerry is having a bad day. And then this tall, pudgy kid bends over, laughing, hardly getting a breath in. It's a great moment. And they won the battle. Yep, that definitely ended the battle. Or, you know, close enough. Well, it ended the episode, right? That it did. Because that is all the time we have for today. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata as we discuss... A surprise guest. An in-depth interview. And BBC's Sherlock? What? (laughs) Wait in their blood. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Magical Sound Effect was Magical Sound Effect by Pixabay. Music for the epigraph was Blast by Alexi Action. Clench Claps were Claps Few People by Pixabay. Clench Counter Sound was Interface by Universe Field. Music for Deicide and Applied Blasphemy was Save As by Toby Lane. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is The Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at TheLongPrice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash P-G-T-E-E. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name receive personalized stories and art, and access a fair number of little tidbits that we've thrown up there. We implore you, don't consider joining 
Unless you're already supporting the artists to make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Grey, our patron and Liege, always a claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fey Knight, our patron and mentor, the traveling teacher, our patron and dear friend, Aaron, our patron and inspiration, the hopeful romantic, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, a very special interview. Part 1.